JAMA published a study a couple of years ago that it takes the average patient 87 minutes to visit a physician for a less than 15 minute uh, appointment with the actual you know, doctor. Uh, that doesn't include time afterwards to get the drugs or see an auxiliary provider or see a specialist. It's just 87 minutes for that, uh, you know, that one encounter. Um, our health system without walls is revolutionary because it aims to bring all of those resources under one digital roof so that the patients can be seen quickly by these high quality providers at a reasonable cost and ultimately better outcomes because these, there's a le higher likelihood that the patients will in fact see these other providers or get their medications if it's done at ease. Oftentimes there are things that impact social determinants of health with uh, populations where, you know, because they're working late or they're not, you know, they're not able to afford their, um, their medications and things like that. All of this makes it easier to create this online experience where uh, whether they're paying cash, they're paying the lowest cost possible or you know, through the other programs that we're working on to ultimately make their, their lives healthier. This is the Providers, Properties and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Today's episode of the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast is with an interview with Karat Karod, co-founder of Healco.com, a virtual healthcare marketplace based out of Jersey City, New Jersey. Telemedicine and virtual healthcare marketplaces are now a part of healthcare delivery, and I enjoyed this interview to help those of us in healthcare and involved in medical properties understand how to integrate with this model to work together to treat more patients with the goal of improving healthcare outcomes and reducing the cost of care. All right, so Kirat, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance Podcast. Thank you so much, Tricia. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your company, Healco? Sure. Uh, Healco is an impact-oriented marketplace platform as a service, which we launched shortly before COVID. Uh, we've evolved quite a bit uh, from where we started, but we're building a health system without walls in New Jersey to deliver a collective of benefits for uh, employees of self-funded employers and at-risk populations to essentially lower the longitudinal cost of healthcare for uh, their employees or members uh, by integrating tele-auxiliary services like pharmacy, mental therapy, soon dietitians, and uh, food uh, prep companies, uh, medically tailored food prep, uh, to augment the traditional brick and mortar physician office visit experience. Yeah, so, um, so a lot of my audience, as you know, uh, is healthcare real estate. So what I thought was good to have you on is that, you know, I do believe that there are going to be virtual options like this. And I think it's important to understand how they both can work together. So uh, what was the spark behind starting Healco? Yeah, uh, so I, we started Healco uh, as a uh, really a marketplace for uh, physicians and auxiliary providers to actually physically meet. And uh, in, in, in we had there was an article in Forbes in 2019 that called uh, called us or dubbed us as sort of the Airbnb of medical space. Uh, and the idea I come from a uh, healthcare. Uh, leadership administration background and planning background. And so for me, what was not really so much focused on the real estate, even though that's where we 
um, a lot of the sort of the, um, you know, the real estate interest comes in from people who own properties and wanted to share them and cut their overhead, but was more from the fact that these groups of providers were coming together. And it was so interesting to see kind of who wanted to work with whom. And it was always, it wasn't always about the, the actual real estate value, but more about who could add more value to my patients, uh, who would be a synergistic addition to my practice. So uh, a physician didn't always want to have every single doctor kind of sharing in their practice. They would often say, I I don't want this type of provider because it wouldn't complement my practice. So that's kind of where we uh, where we started. And uh, am I correct in saying you guys are you know you focus on some primary care services more than special? Well, so we we have. Uh, we have, uh, it's, it's more primary care oriented to start. So our physicians are uh, internal medicine, the physicians that are working for with us in our population health platform and our health system without walls, uh, our primary care and uh, OBGYNs to start, we do see that evolving in the future. Uh, but uh, then our auxiliary providers include uh, mental therapists, uh, pharmacists, and then like I said, soon to be dietitians as well. And what do you do um, if a patient needs to be examined by a physician? How do you make that happen? How do you facilitate yeah. It? yeah, so our, our health system without walls uh, uses local physicians, uh, you know, like I said, currently internal medicine and uh, OBGYNs. So if a patient needs to be seen in, in person, it can absolutely be uh, the same person that they're consulting with asynchron asynchronously on, on our platform. Uh, as we focus more into care delivery and going direct to consumer, and especially as we f move further into chronic care disease management for uh, the employers and the municipalities, uh, integrating the physicians' own, uh, the patients' own physicians will be uh, an integral part of our, our success. Um, and so, you're, so you partner with physicians that do have actual space, but they're partnering with you to provide the virtual services for people that don't want to come in for like, you know, pre, just more of like a triage type of situation? Well, so uh, when a physician, um, when a physician's in their office, you know, they, they are worried about obviously everything that goes on there. But a lot of the times that uh, care coordination that has to happen out when a patient needs to be referred, whether it be uh, for mental therapy, whether it be to, you know, get uh, pharmacy medications or, um, you know, seeing a, a specialist, uh, often they can't, they can't, they actually can't guarantee that the patient's going to be able to do those things. So what we've, what we do is we work with the physicians to, uh, to basically integrate those services into their offices by allowing their patients to connect with mental therapy providers, either while they're in the office or after they leave. Uh, and they can have a free consultation with a, a licensed psychologist in New Jersey. Um, similarly, with our pharmacy products, right now we have a, a, a few SKUs that are out there, but uh, they have access to communicate with a pharmacist about medication adherence questions and things like that. Uh, and so uh, it does very much integrate this hybrid approach of the brick and mortar office kind of leading to the online experiences and session. Nice. And so I, I think I read a lot of your, um, you, a lot of your focus is on creating efficiencies and if they do need to see a physician, um, you know, or it, it helps with efficiencies and, and alleviate the wait times of going in to see a physician. So talk to me about that. Our, uh, our mission from day one has always been to create access uh, to health and wellness services for those that need it the most. It just happened to be that, you know, at first we were trying to physically integrate uh, uh, providers into the same spaces. 
Uh, JAMA published a study a couple of years ago that it takes the average patient 87 minutes to visit a physician for a less than 15 minute uh, appointment with the actual you know, doctor. Uh, that doesn't include time afterwards to get the drugs or see an auxiliary provider or see a specialist. It's just 87 minutes for that, uh, you know, that one encounter. Um, our health system without walls is revolutionary because it aims to bring all of those resources under one digital roof so that the patients can be seen quickly by these high quality providers at a reasonable cost and ultimately better outcomes because these, there's a lot higher likelihood that the patients will in fact see these other providers or get their medications if it's done at ease. Oftentimes there are things that impact social determinants of health with uh, populations where, you know, because they're working late or they're not, you know, they're not able to afford their, um, their medications and things like that. All of this makes it easier to create this online experience where uh, whether they're paying cash, they're paying the lowest cost possible or, you know, through the other programs that we're working on to ultimately make their, their lives healthier. Absolutely. And so right now you're just focused in New Jersey. Do you have any other um, goals for, for going outside of into other geographic areas? Yeah, I mean, we. I, I think the main thing uh, for for us as a company, I mean, we're we're a seed stage company, uh, and and you know, I'm based in New Jersey, and so the the idea of starting uh, any any a part of our collective of services that we've we've offered has always been to launch that minimum viable product within our collective in New Jersey. Uh, which is where we're focused currently with our direct-to-consumer offerings and soon our employee benefits and pop health uh, products. Uh, prior to COVID-19, our provider-facing products, so the one that, we, that I was just describing earlier where uh, uh, physicians and auxiliary providers share space kind of organically grew to outside of New Jersey to about six other states because through word of mouth of people looking for space and things like that and wanted to list their spaces. Uh, we still offer that product to support physicians and therapists uh, to meet each other but, and to potentially lease spaces for me each other, but it's not really part, a core part of our pop health author. And um, when you look at the future, what do you envision the, the, the entire uh, spectrum of services to include? Yeah, that's a great question. So we see uh, the partnerships with these employers and municipalities being our biggest impactful work. Um, you know, in the future, we see uh, you know, these partnerships is a way for us to, um, you know, work squarely on driving down the cost of care and improving health outcomes uh, for their population over time. Um, our health system without walls will be tackling major problems with um, these groups like reversing type 2 diabetes, uh, which will involve the work of all of our existing kind of collective of providers, the physician, the therapist, the pharmacist, driving down drug costs and getting people off, um, you know, insulin or oral medications, which is a big cost, uh, dietitians, and ultimately medically tailored food prep companies. They're also a part so of So your, your intention is to lower costs by improving the outcomes and helping people with basic things, you know, along with their medical needs, but, you know, diet, nutrition, um, sleep and core, Absolutely. core, you know, uh, core fundamentals, I, I guess, for, for, being healthy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's there's a there's a couple ways. I mean, for from a pure cash-based perspective, our direct to consumer products, we offer a price match or price beat guarantee if anything it's not <laughs> happened yet. But if a patient can get a cheaper drug online, if they can get it online delivered for free at a lower price, we'll beat their price and but that hasn't happened like I said. Uh, when it does, it will give us reason to renegotiate with our suppliers. So, I'm looking forward to that opportunity. Um, with our employer and pop health vertical, you were absolutely right. The name 
of the game is keeping people out of hospitals. And with chronic conditions, including type 2 diabetes, the likelihood of those downstream costs uh, increases for payers like employers who are often self-funded or Medicare and Medicaid. So if we can pr make preventative care uh, a, a fundamental part of the equation and monitoring that, that uh, the, the uh, biometrics over time, we're certain that we can bend the cost curve. So, you know, obviously you see virtual care as, do you think virtual care before like being seen in a physician's office to be examined as far as, um, you know, care coordination and is this the right path? Do you see that as the, the wave of the future before going and being seen just to be told you have to go see somebody else? Um, I see it as I, I'm hoping that it's a much more integrated hybrid experience where, um, you know, the future of physician offices and, and many of your listeners are probably designing their and thinking about, um, you know, getting involved in the real estate business. I, I think that the idea that you can hybridize this process and, and integrate, um, you know, other specialists. I mean, you think about children's healthcare and pediatric specialists. I used to work at a children's hospital and people drive, you know, 200 miles to see a pediatric specialist, but there's only like 10 of them in the country, right? So it's like, <laughs> like if you could scale that person up where they'd be happier too, that they don't need to drive around to 10 different towns, like hospital administrators, like I used to, you know, second people to do, but, but it, you know, if they can sit there in their office and, and see 30 patients in the day, uh, you know, I don't know if it's always about how, I mean, yeah, there, there is an aspect of, you know, can somebody be seen, but if you have a pediatrician on the other end and they can do the physical manipulations or whatever needs to be done while the person is there, there's no reason why the, the specialist can't be scaled up or the auxiliary providers. I mean, most uh, therapists and a big part of our shift during COVID was the fact that therapists are mostly practicing online right now. So, and to get an appointment, I mean, each therapist has a panel of about 30, maybe 40 patients in a week. It's not a whole lot of, of a capacity that they have to take more people on. So we really need to leverage, I think, the brick and mortar, which is an important part of it. Even at the height of COVID, uh, patients wanted to be going to see their, their doctors, especially if you think about the senior citizens. I mean, often it's a part of their routine. And, yeah. and, and so um, it's an important thing that I think people, a lot of people need. And, and so I think that that ability to scale both things up so that you have your brick and mortar anchor locations, but also have a component where you're building out, building out telemedicine within that uh, suite is uh, would be really impactful over time. And how do you see um, healthcare policy and regulation affecting your operation at all? Well, it's always been a major part of uh, of the way that we've thought about things. I mean, if you think about, I mean, so um, my background is actually I went to law school at night while I was while I was working in a Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. So I've always thought about. Uh, uh, regulation and Stark law and anti-kickback statute as being really kind of uh, cumbersome and difficult for uh, deals to be done between hospitals and doctors or, you know, potentially even physician you know, referral sources between each other. And so, uh, you know, Stark and anti-kickback has been something that um, starting in 2016, you saw a little bit of unraveling. And then 2018, there was additional guidance saying that they were going to come up with a whole kind of revamp of Stark uh, and anti-kickback law, which originated in in the 1980s when, you know, doctors, do doctors in my parents' generation, my parents aren't doctors, but their friends who were doctors were living the high life. I mean, they were getting cruises from yeah. pharmaceutical companies and things like that. And the, the reason why Stark Law changed was that there, the, the government, I think, realized that there was this uh, desire to move towards value-based 
uh, care and move away from fee for service. And unfortunately, a lot of these Stark laws from the 80s were kind of restricting even very legitimate uh, things from being done to be able to uh, sort of deliver care. So um, I was monitoring that very closely over the last uh, couple of years before I started the company, especially uh, in the early part. The laws were supposed to be announced in 2019. In 2019 at the end. And of course, uh, you know, COVID changed that and, and, and the finalized law, the rules were passed uh, in December 2020. So um, for us, I think uh, in addition to Stark Law, uh, and, and the Stark Law has now created, and this is maybe of interest to your listeners, has created a framework for a value-based enterprise. So our health system without walls is actually, has actually been built and designed as a value-based enterprise. And what that means is that a digital health company, a provider, maybe two providers, can come up with value-based criteria, come up with a value-based board, where if there's substantially ups, substantial enough downside risk to the parties involved, then you could have quality metrics that you're monitoring and share and profits. And why I bring that is important to our business is because whether you're physically sharing spaces with other providers or whether you're integrating other providers uh, asynchronously like we're trying to do, um, there's an opportunity to look at things like H1AC and uh, blue glucose co levels and maybe BMI and a whole range of other things which are proven to drive down the, the long-term uh, cost of care. And if you're able to do that with a collective of providers like we have in our digital umbrella, then you're able to all sh uh, share in the cost savings that might happen. So um, that's so to answer your question, I, I'm gonna I can nerd out on that for hours, but it's uh, no, it's, no, <laughs> I, I, please, yeah. Uh, it's 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 fundamental, and then that doesn't even include the telehealth re regulations, obviously that that are, everyone's kind of waiting for and waiting to see how that will uh, impact everything. But um, I think it's fair to say the telemedicine is here to stay. So yeah, I would agree with you. Um, so how are you able to attract all these clinicians to your marketplace? Well, I mean, the initial, um, you know, we, we had thousands of providers, uh, have had thousands of providers. We still offer the space sharing uh, platform, uh, you know, and, and it's, uh, that's really been just a valuable way for uh, physicians, I think, that need a resource or, you know, therapists that are looking for spaces in, in different markets to really have an ability to come to uh, you know, a, a central place and, you know, list their properties or, or not list their properties. So, you know, it's not always successful. It is a very much a chicken and egg kind of situation with supply and market, you know, dynamics uh, with that particular product. But, you know, when we've had uh, a number, when we were actually executing leases, which again, we don't do through our platform, we had about 30 leases in the first six months that got executed and, uh, you know, b during right before COVID. Now, many of them broke their, their leases and got out of things and, and because it was just not the world for it. But, um, you know, that's initially how we attracted a lot of providers and started having a lot of conversations with, uh, with physicians and therapists about what the world was moving to and which was especially helpful with the mental therapists since we saw that the the trend of the you know people abandoning spaces and moving into uh teletherapy so that's how we did it now that we're focused very much in in, in new jersey and specifically in north jersey a lot of those conversations are led to uh through word of mouth and one provider working with us and then you know kind of uh going to other providers and telling them about what we're doing oh thanks and then how do you partner, um, you said you partnered with hospitals, employers, and then pharmacies. So are these independent pharmacies? And then, you know, tell me about the rest. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the self-funded employers, like many hospital systems, uh, you know, having the benefit of lowering the cost of, of care and, and improving the health of your employee health, employee population. 
has has financial uh, dividends for for these you know employers, including hospital systems. Uh, I imagine that a bunch of other things that we're trying to do that are too disruptive for hospitals. I mean, I view us as the anti-hospital in many regards in terms of trying to prevent people from going to the emergency room and 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 be hospitalized. But if you believe all the hospitals, you know, marketing that's out there, they believe fundamentally in the same thing. So, um, you know, we should be aligned on that. Um, but uh, as far as pharmacies, we work with independent pharmacies. Uh, we have our, our uh, SKUs right now that we're focused on from a cash-based perspective. And we're learning kind of who works with us the best and who um, you know can come up with competitive rates and provide uh, good delivery services and things like that. So uh, we really look at our a network of independent pharmacies uh, in the area and, and have had conversations and, and build our supply of, of drugs through that. Um, ultimately, what we're going to do is have 1099 contract uh, contracted uh, employees, uh, contract contractors, and then ultimately employees uh, that are pharmacists, that are uh, you know di diabetic pharmacists, that are uh, mental therapists, that are focused on uh, nutritional aspects. As we evolve more into the uh, employer and municipal pop health space. So, um, and I, I with regarding uh, to type two diabetes, you know, we have uh, I'm in, I reside in Arizona, and we have a obviously a large Native American population. Uh, which I think could really benefit, but do you, I don't know if they, you would be able to get into their uh, healthcare services. Well, it, it would. I mean, the, the idea ultimately is that if you have a, a physician and I, I've had so many conversations with, with physicians over the last, you know, well, throughout my life, but, but especially over the last, uh, uh, you know, a few months about, uh, food and nutrition because the government in terms of their pay their uh, the medicare's uh, desire to pay medicare advantage plans desire to pay for food uh, as medicine and uh snap benefits which are the food stamp uh food stamps uh have increased in, in the amount that they're giving and so i've been asking uh my physician uh, friends and family members you know even those that are not you know typically like obesity physicians how you know spine doctors uh you know obgyns um, especially internal medicine, how many people talk to you about nutrition or obesity or diabetes? And the answer is about 80%. Now, you know, they want a, people want a solution, but I think they want something as easy as a pill. And so, <laughs> you know, what, what we, uh, what we aspire to do is give these digital health kind of prescriptions over time where, um, you know, any physician and, and the native American population, I have a, a friend who actually worked, um, spent time out there as well in Arizona working, uh, working with that population, you know, to understand each group's, uh, kind of, uh, ethnic, uh, and cultural food, uh, specificities is super important. And, and if we can work with the physicians who are, you know, in, in those reservations and can, uh, you know, integrate, uh, and, and the others, the auxiliary providers can certainly be remote, the dietitian, the pharmacist and all that, but that central person in that reservation basically serves as the physician coach for that thing. And they're having these conversations anyway, they need to be supported by, uh, you know, the technology and, and the scalability of, of these things. And then there needs to be a local interaction. And, and you know, um, another issue entirely is broadband, right? If there's broadband capabilities and things like that, what we're talking about, but assuming there is, there's an ability to bring in all these other resources into that physician patient relationship and then tra track that, uh, uh, track their progress over time. And so I think those are, it's certainly a, a population that uh, can be benefited like many across the country. Right, right. That's right. I, I, I think this is great. I mean, I, I think it's a, a great platform um, and I, I think it can serve a lot of people that right now are finding it a challenge um, to get 
nice, good preventative healthcare holistically and with everybody giving their input that they need in order for it to be successful. Exactly. And it, it takes a team-based approach. And I think it also takes that, that monitoring. And so, um, you know, as we evolve, I mean, uh, remote patient monitoring and um, sort of continuous glucose monitoring and those types of things that can make it easy for people to sort of engage in this process. And then also uh, one major thing that I think always is lacking in uh, these alignments, whether it's sort of as a hospital trying to align with a physician or anything like that, but especially as it relates to patient outcomes, I think the financial incentives have to be aligned kind of up and down, including the employee, including the employer, including the physician team. Uh, and including, you know, whether, what, whatever other overhead costs that are needed to support the technology. But I think it's important to have that uh, at risk. So the, the model that we're, um, we're proposing, we, we're, we're working with uh, on finalizing with a lot of employers is that we essentially will go 90% at risk uh, for the, we have a small proactive per member uh, month uh, fee, but the rest of the 90% savings is totally at risk, depending on these longitudinal outcomes. So uh, I think, you know, if employees, and there's been surveys recently that uh, if, if people are rewarded to get fit, two thirds of them said they would. So, I, you know, <laughs> healthy outcomes itself isn't enough, but we have to give people money or, or I don't know, we can't give them donuts, but we can give them, <laughs> give them something to reward them. But I think cash is the greatest motivator oftentimes. And if you can return, you know, in, in six months, if you have uh, positive outcomes and you get a $500 check because of it, hey, I think that's um, that, that right. beneficial to them. And, and the employer would be gladly willing to write the, that check because they're saving all this money uh, by not, you know, by not having people have heart attacks and, you know, ultimately long term, they're, they're going to avoid their, their, uh, their health plan costs going up. Or, yeah, or like you said, I think it, or, you know, almost like penalize them by, you know, having them pay for more on uh, of the insurance costs right. because ultimately you know all the people that are are being um proactive in their healthcare end up having to pay for those that choose not to be yeah that's a, that's <laughs> you a, know that's a good point uh, that's a good point yeah my, my husband's a big news reader so he was reading that uh, some companies are going to do this with vaccinated versus unvaccinated employees. They're going to require the unvaccinated employees to pay more for their health insurance, which I thought that was an interesting strategy. Yeah, I think it's an interesting time. You know, it's like when, with, uh, with all this stuff, it's like you're, you're, you're also hearing about the quote unquote great resignation where two thirds of, <laughs> of people are looking to leave their current employment situation. So, you know, I prefer the carrot approach rather than the stick approach. I think it might work yeah. a little bit better, but you know, hey, to each his own. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, it'd be like interesting to see in a couple months how that's happened, how that's, if that's successful, but yeah, uh, but yeah <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, so we're going to go now into the, the Q&A uh, section to get to know you a little bit. So what was your first job? Uh, so I'll answer that two ways. Uh, my first legal job, uh, my first job was uh, when I was 12 years old, I convinced my parents to let me uh, walk a, about a mile and a half from our house. This was the early 90s. So a lot could be done then. <laughs> probably can't be done now. Uh, and I uh, convinced a local lawyer in town to let me sort of work with him and file papers. And so that was my first official paid sort of job under the table. Um, the next job I had was not paid, but it was for college credit and was legal, but uh, was in the uh, local, I was interested in public health. So I convinced the, the university to give me some credits for, uh, for, for this, but it was uh, working at a coroner's office during the summer. 
So I worked in our local county coroner's office as a public health project. And uh, I got to experience all that is involved with the coroner's office during the summer, which included, unfortunately, going and picking up bodies that were, you know, uh, around. And so uh, anyway, that was not where I wanted my future to be, <laughs> be but that's, that's sort of where uh, it started from a public health perspective. Wow, that is very interesting. It's the first time I've heard that. Yeah, I tried to be unique. I could have told you. <laughs> I could have told you about my administrative residency at the VA hospital or whatever, but that, that was fun. Well, that, that was, was probably fun. interesting yeah. as well. It was yeah. very interesting. We uh, we found that there was uh, organ allocation issues at the at the neighboring academic medical center, which shared the charter with the the VA hospital. And my project then year became uh, working with that VA hospital in Pittsburgh to create their own the first only independent uh, VA and liver VA kidney and liver transplant program in the country run by the VA hospital. So that was a very cool experience too, but um, that, that was much more in line wow. with what, where my, the next 20 years of my life went. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's neat. So what would you be doing for a living if you were not in the healthcare industry? Um, it's funny. I, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I often wonder why, especially with the great resignation, it's like, it's like, why do I continue coming back into healthcare? It's just the most convoluted <laughs> world there is. Um, I would say I'm a huge New York Mets fan and uh, I had the good fortune. My wife uh, uh, took me to the 9-11 game and I, I had pretty good seats. So I had the opportunity to interact with uh, Steve Cohen, who is the owner of the Mets. And I offered to, uh, to be his GM. Uh, he, he didn't, he, he, he kind of waved me off on that, but you know, it was an offer. And so I would say I'd, I'd want to be the general manager of the New York Mets. And the offer still stands. I don't know if he listens to your podcast, but you know, you never know. <laughs> I don't know if it's it probably isn't the content he typically uh, listens to. He's no, probably, no, probably more on, a, <laughs> on recruiting stats, I think might be more his, the name of his game. <laughs> probably uh, what, <laughs> what are who are you reading or listening to right now for news information or inspiration um i i really wonk out on the the uh, uh public health kind of research and there's just a lot of stuff going on right now with uh with uh both um physician fee for service changes with Medicare in terms of alignments that are allowed. Uh, for example, uh, pharmacists can now bill for annual wellness visits and uh, physicians can integrate uh, auxiliary providers in a different way and bill for them with Medicare. Uh, but also just research related to uh, food as medicine uh, projects that have happened across the country that have, are showing really good results. Uh, just really uh, things along those lines that, that are more, um, you know, just uh, oriented to kind of the work we're doing. And that's, I, I've never been a non, uh, a, I've never been a fiction reader. So nonfiction is kind of the way that I've gone. And then, you know, to, to, to boot, I, I've just found like the podcasts like this one to be tremendously helpful. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, just interesting podcast. I never was a podcast person until I started my own company. I don't think I had the, uh, the, the time to do it, but now I sort of make my own time and, and it's an important part of my, my day to, to sort of do this research that's out there in, in, in all forms. Yeah. I like, I like your, um, the food is medicine mantra. I, I, it, it is something that I constantly, uh, try to preach to my, to my kids. Um, my, and my husband is a big red meat and potato eater, but since, you know, being married to me and we've known each other now for 20 years, he doesn't eat that as much. And, um, <laughs> But I, I, you know, I, I started with my family because I feel like, you know, it is so important, you know, what you're putting into your body and then, you know, trying to feel good. 
Um, and it, and it's, it's, it, it's real, you know, you eat bad food, you're going to feel bad. Yeah. You eat good food, you're going to feel better. Um, yeah. So I, I think uh, that and getting that into schools and having more fresh options, it, it's more expensive and it's more time consuming. But I think in the end, I think it would be better for everybody. I agree. And I think the, you know, with, uh, I, I take the same approach with my, my kids. I actually do the, the food prep for them. Uh, you know, my wife and I go shopping and, you know, then we try to portion out and, and do things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up uh, obese. I, I've struggled with uh, weight, you know, my entire life. And I don't want my kids to have that same sort of, you know, issues now. Uh, but I think having healthy nutrition and having that as a part of sort of everyday, uh, you know, life and that, that balance. And then, you know, I, I think that you know, to your last point, it, it does cost more to eat healthy. And, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, food deserts and uh, food swamps in the country where there's, you know, only a bodega that sells chips and whatever. But um, the, the, the healthy food eating at the end of the day, I mean, I, I hope that the SNAP benefits, uh, the food stamp benefits can align with um, this sort of mentality in the same way that if there's a way that, you know, there's uh, the, the, maybe the cost of the foods that are healthier, um, you know, if, if given through SNAP are, are administered in a cheaper way, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a big opportunity there to, to tie in kind of that diet into, into what people are buying rather than, Hey, take a food stamp and go to stand in line at a, at a, uh, you know, food bank, which is not always, right. you know, which is definitely can't be the most pleasurable experience anyway, but, um, we just have to make the food as medicine. I think food and thinking of food in a preventative way, um, differently and, and, and prioritize it over actual medicine consumption, right? Rather than, hey, let's pop a pill and, you know, and uh, solve my problem. Um, you know, it's just uh, thinking about things in a preventative upstream way rather than a downstream way. And I think that's why employers are focused on this too. It's like, you know, you can go wait till the person has a heart attack or, you know, five years before that, start offering, you know, diet, coach, diet coaching and, you know, have offering a service and support right, right around there early on so that they can make impact. Down, down the road. Absolutely. And I mean, we could go on for this forever, but I mean, I mean, the goal of taking pills, I mean, unless it's a chronic situation is to, you know, hopefully solve the problem and, and not have to take the pills. Cause I know people that do have to take pills, they end up having to take other pills because mm-hmm. of the side effects of those pills. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, it just never ends. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, and then it's also, you know, there's, there's a hundred and 50 to 175,000 deaths every year because of medication compliance. So to your point, it's like, you know, when we don't, we have this disjointed system, we have so many different doctors that could be involved in in the care. Uh, The internal medicine physician is often not that center coach kind of looking at what's there and, you know, people are changing medications, all this stuff. And then people get into emergency situations and they ultimately there's deaths because of it. And so, you know, I, I think it's really important that, that, you know, we take a holistic approach that, you know, these um, in the hospital world, I always found that there was this high, there is this hierarchy of, you know, physicians, and then kind of, you have your ancillary providers on, on the lower rung that, you know, the physician is kind of hailed as, as the, the center of the, the ecosystem. And, and, and in many ways, rightfully, but in other ways where, where it's so disjointed, where, you know, if everybody's treated kind of in this place where, you know, in the ideal sense, everybody's sitting in a room and, 
and talking about all these, you know, a, a, a particular person and knowing what's going on in their life and saying, yeah, you know, we can tweak this. Yeah, they're improving their their uh, nutrition. Okay, they're they're losing weight. This is great. They're making progress. And doing that at scale is really where I think the the opportunities are in the future. And and whether that's tying in brick and mortar and maybe having, you know. Could there be outposts for, you know, just like a refrigerator with healthy meals within uh, doctor's offices? Could there be a similar kiosk type things for certain medications that are, you know, commonly so that people who, you know, if you work late and you're, you work an overnight shift, like many of our public safety, uh, you know, uh, workers do, you may not have the time, especially if you're a single parent to go and get fill medications and do that. Maybe you skip medications. Uh, and there's a lot of data about that, about how many hypertension uh, patients, I think I read up to 40% of people who are prescribed hypertension medications don't take them. It's like, all right, <laughs> it just, it, it's a, it, we have a very broken system, which everyone talks about, but I think the solutions are really about how can we integrate at scale. And now we have the resources, both from a kind of a scalability and a technology platform. And now hopefully the payers are kind of aligning in that same, um, you know, mindset that we can really improve things longitudinally. Well, it's interesting because I think when you go to a physician and you're like, hey, I'm having this problem. I mean, what are the first questions they ask? What are you eating? How are you sleeping? What is your stress management? And are you getting any physical activity? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, the four things that you can control the most yourself, you know, some time management and stuff like that. But, But but it's just interesting that the four things that help you know, unless of course there's chronic conditions and stuff like that. So, you know, qualifying, but, you know, for, before you can solve, I think a a problem, you got to manage those things um, before you can, I think, really see the benefits of any healthcare treatment. Yep. Yep. And, 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 you know, it's, unfortunately we have six out of 10 Americans have chronic conditions with, you know, comorbidities. And so uh, six to 10 uh, adults. And so, you know, uh, I think that there, you know, we, and, and those numbers will obviously increase over time if there's not a, a sea change in terms of what we, we do as a society and what we prioritize. So, yeah, absolutely. And what is one thing you do every day for healthy self-care? Uh, well, you know, certainly uh, I try to work out um, every day. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but I try to work out uh, as I did this morning. Um, the meal prep stuff is, is key for, uh, for my family uh, in terms of just portioning out so that we, uh, we don't, you know, eat out uh, all the time and you know, the convenience of using seamless and all these things. It's like, it's, it makes it really easy, especially where we live, which is uh, an urban, you know, is Jersey city. So we have a lot of uh, those types of options available. Um, uh, but, you know, really uh, just it, it, every, every morning kind of uh, I, I do practice uh, meditation. So, you know, uh, meditating, even if it's for, for a minute a day and, and uh, you know, trying to work out and uh, I do intermittent fasting. So, um, you know, my, I, I'm usually ready to eat everything by, by <laughs> two, two o'clock in the afternoon, but uh, it's all, it's been, it's been helpful, especially uh, during uh, the pandemic and staying, you know, being indoors and gaining a little weight during that time. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's been interesting. Prevents <laughs> you from snacking all day, huh? That's right. I, I get out and walk around and well, and which is a good thing for me. I mean, I, I, we have one car in my family. I, I walk everywhere, uh, which is great in uh, Jersey city. So I have about, uh, my step count usually is around 11 or 12,000, uh, steps. So we, my, I went to vacation with my, uh, I, my family a few weeks ago and I was like, in Key West. And it was like, you know, you could walk around all day long and I still didn't walk around as much as I do at home. So, um, you know, I guess it is a vacation. That was a vacation of sorts Yeah. <laughs> in that regard. Uh, so do you think leaders are born or trained? Uh, um, 
you know, I, I think that uh, inherent, I think there's, there's facet, there's skills within leaders that can be trained, but I think that the innate uh, ability to be a leader uh, is sort of, you're, you're born with certain fundamentals, I think that, that make you more prone to be, you know, have those leadership uh, attributes. And some of that could be about, you know, personality trait and kind of what you like. And if you're an introvert or you're extrovert and stuff like that. And I, you know, but, but I think a lot of that, and so I think it's, some of it is innate, but, you know, there are certainly uh, leadership skill sets that can be honed in on over, over time. I mean, I think that, you know, somebody who's a, who's a, who's a born leader at, at five years old and is kind of, you know, whatever, they're obviously got some raw skills of, of getting motivating people to move in a direction. But then, uh, you know, there's so many other things with leadership, which include uh, ethics and values and, and uh, you know, uh, things beyond just can you motivate somebody to do something that, that mm -hmm. I think, you know, can be, uh, can certainly be, uh, you know, um, massaged over time and, and uh, you know, and, and, and taught and, and given different perspectives over, uh, over, you know, a lifetime of learning. Absolutely. Well, Karat, this has been a wonderful interview. I appreciate your time. Likewise. Thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate everything that you're putting out there and good luck to all your listeners as well. Thank you. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.